The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places. And as I went through that this week, I began to think, you know, it might be a good idea as we listed many of those spiritual blessings to just pick them out and go deeper. I think it would be good for us to just drill down because the depth of these incredible spiritual blessings uh, is almost more than the human mind could grasp. But this morning, I want you to look with me at Ephesians 1, begin verses 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Now, many times people will come up to Christians and say, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And they're right. You don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But you find the doctrine of the Trinity alive and well, and it's front and center in this first chapter of Ephesians. Paul seems to be piling on more and more information in a short amount of time. You recall last week I mentioned that uh, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek, and that translators have broken it down to make it easier to read. But Paul just heaps one more truth on top of the other. But still, there is an obvious progression here of these, in these phrases where the Trinity is made very clear. For example, we see the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The work of the Father is principally stated in verses 3 through 6, the work of the Son in verses 7 to 10, and the work of the Spirit in verses 11 to 14. So today, I want to take that one gift... And I want to focus our attention on that one word, redemption. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in redemption, but it was Christ's primary role in securing it. The work of the Father was primarily in planning our salvation, setting the plan in motion, elect before the foundation of the world. The work of the Holy Spirit is in applying to the individual that work. And Jesus' principal work was to achieve salvation through the redemptive act on the cross of Calvary. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at a purchased price. Redemption is central to Christianity. More than that, it is probably the single most beloved term in all of Christianity. In the early part of the last century, B.B. Warfield, the distinguished uh, professor of theology at Princeton Seminary, back when that was a solid biblical school, delivered an address to the oncoming students that year, and he said that redemption was the single most important word for all Christians. It was the word that when we look at it, it is placarded in front of us, the reality of Christ paying a price to secure our salvation. So when we look at it, we begin to find that there are so many facets to this word redemption. 
In fact, there are three words that I want us to see this morning, three words of redemption that's used in the New Testament. The first word is agorazo. It comes from the noun for a Greek marketplace, an agora. It means to buy or to purchase something at a marketplace. This word emphasizes the price Jesus paid for our salvation. However, as soon as you mention the word price, many object. Many think by putting a price on salvation is to make God cheap, that he's charging for a free gift. They say salvation is free, and to think of God extracting a price for his forgiveness is to make God more of a a cheap individual. Because of this reasoning, some scholars have tried to change the idea from buying to deliverance. That is, to setting someone's free without the accompanying idea of price. Now look with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 21, it says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is the verse that many people will use when they come to this conclusion. But the Emmaus disciples, speaking of Jesus, they were speaking of him as a political deliverer. And see, this is why the Jews never accepted Christ when he came. Because they expected their Messiah to come on a white charger, leading in great victory, stomping out all their enemies and setting up their kingdom to live forever. And so when Jesus came on a lowly colt and said that he had to die, this didn't fit what they wanted. And so they rejected Christ. They would also refer to Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In this paragraph, it says that the promised Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Here, redemption refers to deliverance from a life of sin and decay. But that's not the whole story. The one thing the Emmaus disciples simply misunderstood is the true reason why Jesus came just as those who speak of redemption miss it today. Now, we know this because later Jesus began to unfold for his disciples how it was necessary for him to come and to give his life a ransom, that he was to come to, give, to show repentance and forgiveness and to preach salvation through him. The price of redemption is Christ's death. That is what Jesus himself is talking about here. And what the world tries to reject is that reality. Now, the idea of deliverance by payment, by a price, was very common in that day. In fact, the Jews spoke of a a goal, a G-A-A-L, which is to redeem, and they spoke of a goal, G-O-E-L, which means kinsman redeemer. You see, it was principle of Jewish law that a family should retain their property. And if for any reason one was to lose their property, uh, either through debt or other means, then it was the responsibility for a family member to come and redeem that property and give it back to them. 
This is what Boaz did for the land that had belonged to the husband of Ruth. A second Hebrew word is kofer, K-O-F-E-R, which means ransom price. Now, if a family animal had killed a person, the animal could be killed as payment for the life taken. But if there was negligence, the owner of the animal could be killed as payment. But this didn't do anyone any good. So there was an arrangement whereby if a man who who owned the animal could settle on a price to pay and cover the cost of the lost person, he was known as a kofer. Now, the point is, the idea of redemption by payment was firmly fixed in the Old Testament cultural world. It would therefore be natural for the New Testament writers, who themselves were Jews and quite familiar with all of this, would be able to use those concepts. Again, this is not only the Old Testament Hebrew world that we find this. We also find it in the New Testament Greek world as well. In fact, there were many contracts that were used for freeing slaves. For example, you might find one that read like this. So-and-so pays to the Pythian Apollo the sum of X talents for the slave so-and-so on the condition that he or she is to be set free. This occurs so frequently that it was a normal practice in the Greek world. So the idea of a price being paid to free someone was very common to them. However, the real reason why why we must return to the idea of a price when discussing redemption is because that's what the Bible talks about. The Bible is very clear and very pointed in this area. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was Jesus talking about here? Obviously, he was saying that he was going to buy us out of slavery to sin with the cost of his very own life. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So when this verse says that Jesus gave himself for us, it means literally he gave his life to redeem us, to buy us back. You see, every person born on this earth is born a slave to sin. We are hopelessly lost. That's our lot in life. But Jesus came to purchase us out of that slave market of sin. And to set us free. He finally states, and and we saw this last week in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. In these verses, the idea of Christ's life being the price of redemption is inescapable. And that is why when people argue that everyone can find their own way to heaven, 
It's pure ignorance. There is only one way. There is only one price that was paid, and it was Jesus Christ. To anyone think there's any other way to get around it is pure arrogance and humanism. Now, it gets better. He purchased and freed us. The other New Testament word for redemption, which helps to make the concept clear, is taking the same word we've been looking at, agorazo, and putting ex in front of it, ex agorazo, which means out of. Now, here's what's so important, because it means to buy out of the marketplace, but here's the key. It's with the intent that one purchased will never go back again. This is particularly a blessed thought for Christians because it has to do with the effective, permanent nature of redemption. When we are speaking in spiritual terms of redemption, we have in mind that we are being freed from sin. And the promise of this word is that we will never be sold under the power of sin again. It is once and for all. That's why Ephesians says that you are sealed until the day of redemption. When you're purchased by Christ, you, it is a forever purchase. You see, Jesus purchased us so that we would be taken out of the marketplace never to return. A once saved, always saved is the way we often refer to it. But are you ready for this? Having been purchased at the infinite cost of the blood of Christ, God's own Son, there is no one who can possibly top that price and purchase us away. There is no higher price. That one God, the creator of the universe, would pay for us with his own blood? You can't top that. You have been bought <clears throat> with the highest price there ever can be. You are sealed until the day of redemption. The third word is interesting. It's the word luo, L-U-O. It means to loose or to set free or deliver by a payment of a price. Now, this is incredibly beautiful for Christians to really allow this to sink in. <clears throat> for it's not merely that we are bought out of the marketplace of sin, never to be returned there. You see, a person could be bought off the auction block and never be returned there, but spend their whole life a slave to the one who purchased them. But here's what Jesus has done. Jesus buys us <clears throat> and sets us free. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus purchases you and sets you free. The reality we have here <clears throat> is that we have a God who loved us so much to send his son to pay the price for our sins that when purchased, he frees us from that bondage of 
sin. And this is why the Apostle Paul talks about a bond slave. He called himself a bond slave. A bond slave is one who has been freed, purchased by the master, but he's so in love with the master in his care and his kindness that he gives himself to the master as a slave by his own choice. He's a bond slave. You and I take Christ as our Savior. And when we recognize the price that was paid and the joy and the love that was given to us, our whole existence wants to throw ourselves back on Christ to be used by Him, to be His slave. Paul literally called himself a slave of Christ. And you know, when we talk every week about John the Baptist saying that he must increase and I must decrease, we talk about the Holy Spirit. It is that life that says, Jesus Christ, you gave yourself for me, everything in me is yours. I surrender to you this morning. I am yours totally. And that is the amazing picture we have here. Now, when you know that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished that for us, we, can, we can't expect or even think about living any other way than completely surrender to him. But now here's where it gets even better. The fellowship of the redeemed. The last verse of this section speaks of the fellowship of the redeemed and of God's purpose and redemption. Look at verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, Paul's use of the word mystery is ironic because those reading it didn't understand what it was. But in Bible language, a mystery is something that formerly was unknown, but is now revealed. And so Paul is revealing the ultimate plan of Christ in redemption. Paul reveals in this verse that it was God's ultimate purpose in redemption to bring all things in heaven and in earth together again under Jesus Christ. Now, I use the word again for a reason. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that the key to understanding these verses is in a word which, strangely enough, is omitted by many translations, and it's the word again. And it occurs in Greek in the connection with the verb bring together under one head. The verb, it's a strange one, but the root of the verb means head. So variations of the word could be headstone or cornerstone. The main point of an argument, a summary or even a scroll in which things are summed up. So the verb in Ephesians 1 verse 10 is an expression of this word and the word again is the link to it. So the word really says that it is God's purpose to bring together or to unite or to sum up all things again in Jesus Christ. In other words, everything was together in Jesus once. 
It was severed by sin, but is to be reunited in him together again in redemption. He's bringing it all back. Now, you know, some people will ask, I wonder what kind of bodies we'll have in heaven. You know, after Christ returns and the millennial reign and the new heaven and the new earth and we're permanently seated with Christ, what kind of bodies will we have? Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about this that when we die, our spirits immediately go into the presence of Christ. But our bodies are resurrected when he comes back again. And so if he's uniting these bodies together... I'm not dogmatic about this, but I kind of view it as perhaps our bodies will be like that of Adam and Eve before the fall. It's an interesting concept. I'm not ready to debate it. But when you think about it, why bring these bodies back if he's not going to use them? And if he's bringing everything again back to the way it was, then that could be a good opportunity to think about. Now, I want to quickly point out that this is not the doctrine of universalism the doctrine that all fallen creatures will be saved. Uh, That's repudiated all through Scripture, and particularly with Jesus' own words. But it is the teaching, rather, that all things will be subject to Christ. Some willingly, as those who have given their lives to Christ and rejoice in His rule, and others unwillingly, as evil has taken over in their lives. The perfect harmony that will be restored will be harmony between men and and between men and God. Harmony on the earth and harmony in the brute creation. Harmony in heaven and harmony on the earth. Christ will be the head of all. Now this harmony is an interesting thing to think about. If you've been listening to the news recent weeks, harmony is not in it. Anything but harmony. But you know, there is not going to be harmony until Christ comes. Christians should work to stem the tide, to promote harmony, to love. But I want to tell you, you're not going to stem harmony by taking sides and throwing mud. If you truly believe that Christ is in control and you truly believe that all things are moving in his plan, the only thing that will change anything is Jesus Christ. The only thing that will curb men's hearts is the Spirit of God. Now that day is coming. Some are looking forward to it, some are not. That day is coming. It's the mystery of the plan that he has set forth. But today, the only way you and I can solve the problem is by showing the mercy and love of Christ. Otherwise, we're no different than anyone else. You know, I I chuckle sometimes. I see debates rolling on Facebook. And I know that some are Christians. And I listen to what they're saying. And you realize that it's dividing Christians. You know one of the greatest examples of unity? Right here, Grace. We have blacks, we have whites, 
We have Africans. We have Hispanics. And we love each other. And we minister to each other. We just had a blessed joy of being able to send clothing and stuff to Kifas um, where the children that they take care of in Africa, the orphanages. And what a joy it was to do that. But what do we have in common? The Spirit of God. It is the only thing that unites. So when you and I are out there in the marketplace, the only thing that's going to unite is to bring people in. Bring them into the Word of God. Show them the love of Christ. You see, we forget so often that when Jesus came, He came to fulfill the law because we couldn't. But He came with a message of redemption and forgiveness. And you know, so often I use the adulterous woman as an illustration. I mean, she was caught red-handed under the law. She deserved to be stoned to death. And what did Jesus say? I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. That was scandalous. But Jesus said, I love you with a cross. I give my life for you. With the cross. So how can any one of us get out there and sling mud as if Christ isn't even in our lives? You want to change the world? Then give him Christ. Because without him, nothing will ever change. And it doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on. If he's not at the center of your heart, you will be wrong. That's all there is to it. Everything, everything, one day will be returned to him. And wonder of wonders, when it happens, it will never be undone again. All will be reunited in him through all eternity. And that's the mystery which has been revealed to us through redemption. The beautiful goal of Christ was to redeem his people and bring him back to his intended purpose. So, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father today, right? And we know why he sits there, because the scripture says that when we pray, the Holy Spirit takes our requests and takes them with groanings we don't understand, and that Jesus sits there interceding with the Father for us. But you know why he's really sitting there? He's sitting there to watch out for his purchased possessions. When you're in Christ, you're his. And after all, we belong to him, why wouldn't he? So if you'll stop and think a little bit about the amazing thing of redemption that sets us free for all eternity, that amazing truth that he sits right there at the right hand of the Father, watching out for us, interceding for us, giving the Spirit to guide us into all truth. 
The reality is, he is in us and through us for his glory. And that should set us free once and for all from the trials and all the turmoils that so easily knock us aside. What an amazing word, redemption. Purchased out of the slave market of sin forever and freed forever. Will you be his bond slave? Will you be the antidote for a crooked world? Will you be the one who stands up and shows the love of Christ in such an overwhelming way? The world only knows one way, and it's personal rebellion. But when they see the love of Christ through you, they can't help but notice that's a difference. What will we do with redemption? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for that amazing grace. The grace that just overwhelms us. It's amazing to think all the struggles that we go through and then realize that every one of them Every one of them is in your hand. And that amazing grace guides us to the perfect plan you've set aside for us. Lord, help us to consider redemption in a more true meaning. Not just for the act of eternal security but the ongoing act of living as a bond slave for Christ. And that if anyone should turn on us, bear false witness, accuse us, may we respond with passion and love and forgiveness. The world doesn't know why we're different. And the world only knows one way to act. The only way they'll know is what they see in us. And to many people, our lives are the only gospel they'll read. So what is the gospel according to us? I pray that you would have your way in the hearts of all of us for your sake. And may we praise you today for redemption. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless.